A few years ago, we were in Oxford in England during the sabbatical that I received, and I was reading uh, an article in which a leading philosopher in, in the UK was arguing the case that we would have a better world if we just got rid of all religions. In fact, he went on to argue that religion is the source of much of the bane, much of the suffering of the world. And he cited several examples. I was a bit taken aback by that, because if you look at the great advantages we have had in civilization, whether you think of the universities or hospitals or great works of charity, especially in the Western world, you can trace their roots to Christianity. And when he complained that religion was a source of war, I was quite taken aback because when you look at the two greatest wars that we have ever had in history, World Wars I and II, were not started by Christians. We're not started by people fighting for religion. So I was somewhat amazed by the article. But there is a view that is current and pervasive, especially in the times in which we live with extremism growing on every hand. There is a, a view that, Christ, that Christianity and the scriptures are indeed a promoter of violence. And that the God of the Old Testament is a God to be feared because he is vengeful. But the God of the New Testament is an attractive God, a loving God. Years ago when Robin Williams, the actor, was here, we had opportunities to converse. And in one of our sessions together, he, I asked him where did he stand with his faith and whether he believed in God. And he said, yes, he believed in God, but... He had a problem with the God of the Old Testament. He loved the God of the New Testament, but he had a problem with the God of the Old Testament because he appeared to be a bloody God, a God of violence. And so while the world looked at religion as violent and the source of violence, even within Christian circles, it would appear that there is some unease with the God of the Old Testament, and particularly the usage of violence. I want to look at that, the whole notion of violence and the Christian faith, through the lenses of a text that was read in Numbers 25, and particularly the zeal of Phineas. Numbers, the book of Numbers is an Old Testament book. It is not a book that we travel very often. I would suggest to you, even though I have no empirical evidence, that there are certain books in the Old Testament like Numbers and Leviticus that we go through them like bullet speed. And part of the fact is that we don't really think that we get a lot out of these books, something that I disagree with. The book of Numbers receives its name from the two censuses that are found. One of them, the first, is found in chapters 1 to 4, and the last one is found in chapter 26. And these two censuses actually demarcate the book of Numbers. The Hebrew title for Numbers is really wandering, as I've mentioned before when we looked at this book. And what it does is, it, while if you look at the book of Exodus, 
Genesis talks about the beginning of the world, of creation, and the, the origin of Israel. Exodus charts Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And Leviticus is like a hiatus, a, 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 an intrusion, it appears, in the narrative. Because while you have Exodus taking you on, a, on, on the journey Moses leading Israel of Egypt, Leviticus appears not as a journey, but as a book of descriptions of laws and regulations that are given for Israel, that are given to them to, to, to navigate the relationship with God. That the God that they serve must be a God that they fear and obey. And so there's a book of regulations for Israel's relationship with God. Numbers, you could actually draw a straight line between Exodus and Numbers. Because Numbers continues the journey of Israel. But now it deals with their 40 years that they spent in the wilderness. As I said, the book divides into three sections, chapter 1, verses, uh, chapter 1 to chapter 10, verse 10. The second division in chapter 10, verse 11, to chapter 23, verse 35. And the final chapter is chapter 22, verse 1, to chapter 36, verse 13. When you come to this last section of the book, of numbers. Israel is located on the plains of Moab. They are on the edge of Canaan. And chapter 25 is strategically located because what you have in chapter 24 is the blessing of Balaam. Balaam is a foreign prophet. He's not a prophet of the Lord. He's a prophet for hire. So you basically pay him and he'll prophesy good things. You know, we, we do that in our world. We have all these people reading our palms and telling us about our future. They're telling us what we want to hear. I don't know how many people go to those places and they tell you, you know what, tomorrow you're going to die. Get your house in order. They, they can't tell you bad news because if they do, you're not going to go back. Balaam was a prophet for hire. But he prophesied that God was going to plant Israel in the land like a tree. That they were going to be established and God was going to bless them in the land. And then you get chapter 25, which is a shocking departure. Because it navigates, it narrates the sin of Israel at this place, Baal, at, 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 sorry, at Shittim, this place that the writer calls Achaia Grove in chapter 25, verse 1. That they worship the God Baal Pure. And this is a shocking departure. In one sense, this incident in chapter 25, the, the, the sin of Israel, the idolatry of Israel at Achaia Grove or Shittim, parallels Israel's sin in the golden calf incident earlier on in Exodus. Because it was right after Moses received the Ten Commandments, the great blessing on Mount Sinai, right at the foot of Mount Sinai, after God had blessed them in a covenant relationship, 
that Israel went and worshipped the golden calf. And chapter 25 shows us the same thing. After they have received this great blessing from God in chapter 24, here we see them sinning in chapter 25. And so it is strategic. But it is strategic in another sense because chapter 25 gives us the final account of apostasy and it shows us the death of the final group of rebels in the wilderness. In other words, that generation that came out of the Exodus, chapter 25 tells us that the last of them apostatized, rebelled against God, and they died. Thirdly, it is strategic because it is placed before chapter 26, which is now the census of the second generation, the children of those who had come out of Egypt. And it is placed there as a challenge, the story. Will they follow their fathers, the very last of whom have now been killed because of their sins? Or will they follow the way of Phineas? I want us to look at this passage before us in chapter 25 here of Numbers. And the chapter divides into three sections. In fact, you have verses 1 to 9 describes the sin of Israel and Phineas' zeal for God. And then verses 10 to 15, God's favorable response to Phineas and his action. And then verses 16 to 18, the judgment upon the Midianites for seduction of Israel. These are the basic outline of the passage. But let me put out a number then of positions regarding this chapter. First and foremost, Phineas' zeal for God's honor in the face of egregious sin mirrors God's zeal for his own honor. That's the first thing. The zeal of Phineas for God's honor in the face of shocking or egregious sin is a mirror of God's own zeal for his honor. Moses describes the moral transgression of Israel in emphatic fashion. They had spent 40 years at Kadesh Barnea because they refused to enter the land. And now we hear that they have come to the grove of Achaia or Shittim. And we are told in verse 1 in 20, chapter 25, the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They, that is the women of Moab, invited the people of Israel to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Israel is encamped in the area of Shittim, Achaia Grove. It is in the plain of Moab. It is the last stop before they enter Canaan. Numbers 33, 49 shows us. It is the same place from where Joshua will send spies into the land. Joshua 2, verse 1. And it is the same place from which Joshua would lead Israel across the Jordan. Joshua 3, verse 1. Here the narrative stresses the people three times. Now it says, now Israel remained in Achaia Grove. And the people began to commit harlotry. 
In verse 2, they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Three times he repeats, Yom, Giam, the people of God. And you see, there is an emphasis there to let us understand that these are the same people whom God has called to himself, who has made into a nation. These are the people of God who had given themselves into immorality and idolatry. It says in our text that the people began to commit harlotry. That is, they began to defile themselves by engaging in sexual immorality with the women of Moab. But not only were they engaging in sexual relations with the women of Moab, they also defiled themselves by bowing down to the gods of the Moabites, including the god Baal Peor. And Baal was the god of the Canaanites, he was known as Baal Peor across the Jordan in Moab, but it was the same God. He was a storm God, the God who they believed brought the storm. He was the head of the Canaanite pantheon of gods. He was the chief God of the Canaanites and of the Moabites. And here we are told in verse 2 that the women of Moab invited the people, that is they call them, literally they call them to the sacrifice of their gods. There is a suggestion that what was taking place was, of course, that it was in the context of the worship of Baal of Pure that the sexual activity took place. You must understand that in Old Testament times, or in ancient, ancient Near Eastern times, the worship of the gods was often accomplished by sexual rituals. They were temple prostitutes. You see, there was a belief that if you engage in sexual immorality in the worship of the gods, that that you, you become fruitful because sexual relationship brings fruitfulness as children. And so that would be like a, a, a mirror, a picture of what the gods would do for one. And so there was a notion that, that sexual immorality was taking place within the context of the worship of Baal. Whatever we make of what was happening, one thing we know is that they were, on one hand, involved in sexual activity with these women, and secondly that they were worshipping foreign gods. This marked then a radical departure from the first and the second commandments, which commanded total and exclusive allegiance to the Lord. If you go back to Exodus 20, Israel was told that they should have no other gods besides the Lord, nor should they bow down to their gods. But now we read in verse 3, so Israel was joined attached to Baal pure. They had given themselves in allegiance by worshipping this God and by engaging in sexual immorality, they had joined themselves to Baal pure. And we read, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. You know, the book of Exodus commanded them to keep clear of foreign women and foreign gods. In Exodus 34, 14 to 16, Moses elaborates, he says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifices to their gods. And one of them invites you to eat of his sacrifice. You take of his daughters for your sons and 
his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You see, the Lord commanded Israel to be separate from the nations. Not because, they were, not because the Lord believed that they were somehow better than the nations, but because the foreign women and the foreign gods would corrupt them, would lead them into idolatry and to displease God. This is exactly what happened in the time of Solomon. Solomon loved many foreign women and married many of them. And what did they do? They led his heart away from God, so he began to erect idols to these gods. God was angry because they had engaged in immorality and even worse, in idolatry. It seems that the anger of God was not just an emotive thing for, if you go down to verse 8, there was a plague that came from the Lord. People began dying. The Lord was angry, so we read that the Lord spoke to Moses. This is the first of three occasions where God speaks in this chapter. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Here's a command from the Lord to Moses to execute the wrongdoers. And here in this context, the leaders are singled out. They are to be impaled. They are to be hung publicly as a dissuasion from the rest of Israel to follow. We do not know the role of the leaders here, but it is clear that some of them were involved in the idolatry and in the morality. And that they were to be made an example of before the people. Now, some of the commentators have argued that Moses actually spoke. You know what Moses said? Moses said to the judges of Israel, every one of you kill his men who was joined to Baal of Peor. And so what commentators of some have argued is that God told him, you must execute the leaders, that is ostensibly those who were involved in this rebellion and his idolatry. And Moses goes and says, kill all the people who were involved. That is, spare the leaders. I don't think that is what is happening here. I mean, there's no rebuke of Moses. It is clear that when God commanded him to execute the leaders, it is typological. In other words, the Lord moves from the greatest to the least. They are singled out as the representative who should be executed. But it is those, in a text it says, those who have offended. So it is not just the leaders who were to be, to be executed, but those who were involved in this egregious offense. And Moses read this commandment in this sense. So Moses gives the commandments to the leaders, those who were placed over thousands and hundreds and fifties, who were not themselves engaged in this idolatry and in this immorality. They were to do so, so that the fierce anger of God may turn away. You notice in verse 4 it says, that they're to be hung, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel, that God would have compassion, if justice has been done, God would have compassion on his people and turn away his anger, which, of course, revealed itself in the plague that now affected them. But we are introduced to Phineas in verse 7. This man is a grandson of Aaron, the high priest. He's the son of Eliezer. And we read that he rose up and does something that is absolutely shocking and gruesome. 
we read that there was a man of Israel, a man who came from a reputable family, a man known as Zimri, son of Salu, a leader of the tribe of Simeon, in verse 14. This man is not satisfied with going out to the Moabite women, but he takes a woman of Moab, and he comes before the assembly of God's people. The people of God had gone to the tent of the tabernacle, to the door of the tabernacle, and they were weeping. They were weeping because of the sin in Israel. They were weeping because of the anger of God. Moses is there with the leaders who are faithful. The people are assembled weeping. And this man walks into the assembly before the people of God and before the leaders of God and before God himself. And parades, introduces this woman to the congregation and then goes off to his tent to copulate. Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the grandson of Aaron, a priest, takes up the command of Moses. You remember in verse 5, Moses had commanded them to execute every one of you, his men, those who joined themselves to Baal of Pure. And we read the story, this shocking story, of how Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, rose up from before the congregation, took a javelin in his hand. He pursued the man and the woman in the tent. The language suggests that they were already engaged in sexual intercourse. And he ran the woman through the belly. He says through the body here, but it means the stomach. And he ran the man through. And the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. It is shocking. It is shocking on a number of levels, the violence that is involved. It is shocking because the man is a priest. I can only say to you that it was not that priests were forbidden to involve themselves in, in violence. After all, they were told to guard the tabernacle, and they were guarding the tabernacle for anybody who intruded, they would cut them down with the sword. What are we to make of this story of Phineas, a priest. First, we must understand that he exhibits in executing this man and this woman, he acts according to divine command. It is the Lord who commanded Moses to execute the offenders, and it is Moses who commanded the leaders of the people, including Phineas, to execute those who were offended. And so you need to understand that this is not a man who's acting as a maverick. He's not a vigilante. He doesn't take justice in his own hands. He is directed by the divine command which comes to Moses and from Moses to the people of God. That's the first thing. But you must also note that the zeal that he exhibits is zeal for God. We continue to read in verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, a second time God speaks, in verse 4, and now in verse 10. And the Lord says, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel, because he was zealous 
with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, Behold, I will give to him my, my covenant of peace, and it should be to him and his descendants after him a covenant for an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. What he did was in slaying these offenders, he pacified God. He's a priest. And his job has always been to pacify the wrath of God. He brought offerings before God. And in executing these two, he took away the anger of God from the people. But notice, the Lord says that this man acted. He was zealous with my zeal. He exhibited the same zeal that is in God. And when we think of zeal, we need to realize that zeal refers to fervency or passion to advance the, the cause or the interest of someone. Zeal is passion. Passion for something or for someone. And this man was passionate, was fervent for the honor of God. He did not believe that God should be so horribly flouted, that the rules of God and the, the, the person of God should be trampled upon. He did not believe that God, who is creator and the redeemer of his people, should be so shockingly treated by this man and this woman. And so he stood up in the interest, out of passion and zeal for God. The Bible tells us that God is a zealous God. In fact, the word that is chosen is jealous. The Bible describes God as a jealous God. But when the Bible talks about God as jealous, it means zealous, full of zeal. Exodus 34, 14, which I read earlier. You shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. God is jealous or zealous for his honor. Now, when we think of the jealousy of God, this kwana, we're not talking about some petty, some petty self-centered feeling that lies in God. God's jealousy or God's zeal is a byproduct of God's holiness. God is zealous, fervent for what is right and good and pleasing because he's fundamentally a holy God. And God's interest is of the greatest concern to him. God is passionate. God is jealous. It is not that jealousy that comes from envy and competitiveness and resentfulness of others. But it is God's great concern for his name and for righteousness. You know, there's some jealousy that is, that is legitimate. You know, there's some jealousy which is good. I was, in, I was a pastor in South Africa, a very young pastor in South Africa. And I was counseling this fellow. And he told me that his wife had other lovers. And that she would go out at night to be with these fellows. And so I said, well, how do you feel about that? He said, well, you know, I, you know, I, don't, I don't quite mind as long as she comes home. I, I, I couldn't figure it out. Because marriage was to be, is expected to be exclusive. 
But he didn't mind that his wife was sleeping out so long as she came home at night to be with him. That man, that man is immoral because he lacks the jealousy, the deep concern, the passionate concern for the purity of marriage. So there's, a, there's a place for jealousy, for godly jealousy. And God's jealousy or zeal is a concern for what is right and for what is holy for his honor. By the way, it's also important to know that God is zealous for holiness and zealous for his name. But it also bears in mind that God acts because of his zeal. I, I want to point you to one text. I could do so, point you to other texts, but notice it says in Isaiah 9, talking about the coming of the Messiah, where the text says, Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. God says, I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to establish his kingdom. And the zeal of the Lord, God in all of his righteous and holy passion, will accomplish this. God is a zealous God. And so the first thing that you need to recognize when you think of Phineas... And this shocking murder is that this man, or this shocking execution, this man acted in the zeal that mirrors God's zeal. His zeal was for the honor of God, the same zeal that is found in God for his own honor. Secondly, we need to know that not only is his zeal, Phineas's zeal, a reflection of God's own zeal for his honor, but Phineas's zeal for God's honor receives divine approbation and blessing. God blesses him. We look in our text and we see, for instance, in verse 10 and following, that the Lord speaks to Moses. He says, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, in verse 11, the priest has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel. He has, he has intervened and removed my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. And verse 12, therefore behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. The Lord not only commends him for demonstrating a zeal that is found in God, but now the Lord promises him blessing. The Lord sees that he has acted in righteousness from pure motives for the honor and for the glory of God in obedience to the command of God. He has a passion for the interest, for the glory, for the honor of God. And the Lord promises to make a covenant of peace with him. This covenant of peace represents the assurance that God would work for his good, for his well-being. And this obligation of God to work for Phineas's well-being is now extended to the well-being of his family. So that God, while the people of Israel continued, that God will give to him an everlasting priesthood. God blesses him. God not only commends his action, but blesses him with a covenant, with a commitment of peace. To do him good. We notice that the Lord, however, in verses 14 and 15 and after that, we see that in the rest of the text that the Lord goes on to condemn the Midianites. 
We note in verse 14 that this woman also, this woman uh, that, that he took into the camp, he was a leader or a child, a son of a leader. She was also the child of a leader. In verse 15, the name of the Midianite woman was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, and he was head of the people of a father's house in Midian. So these are two people from respectable families who were engaged in immorality. And then we notice, in verse 16, a third time God speaks to Moses, harass the Midianites and attack them. And because they were the ones who were involved in attacking Israel, and they were involved in seducing the people of God. And so there was a close connection between the Moabites and the Midianites in seduction. I, I want to make one other point here before I, I move on. It's interesting that in Numbers 31, 1 to 8, the Midianites are to be put to the sword. Because though Balaam had prophesied good that God would bring upon Israel, you know, he was called by Balak, the king of the Moabites, to go and curse Israel. And what did he do? He blessed Israel. And of course, the king of Moab was not very pleased with him. But it seems that Balaam, while he could not curse Israel, and he must bless them, he, he, he did something that was terrible. Because he went to the Midianites and he said to them, well, well, let me tell you how to defeat Israel. Let me tell you how to bring them down. Get your women to seduce them. Bring them in. Let them worship your gods. Because he knew that God would discipline his people. And so later on in Numbers 31 verse 16, Balaam himself is killed along with the Midianites who followed his advice and seduced the children of Israel. So, my, so I made two points. First of all, the zeal of Phineas is a reflection and picture of God's own zeal for his honor. Secondly, that God commends and blesses Phineas for his zeal. But it is precisely at this point that some have charged God with immorality. Where some have argued that God, the God of the Bible, is an immoral God who incites and gives legitimacy to violence. What do we make of this? How do we respond to this? Let me just make a few points regarding this charge that God is immoral. First and foremost, as human beings, we never get the right and privilege to judge God. We are judged by God, but never can we judge God himself. Secondly, no one has yet to show why it is illegitimate and immoral for God to punish people for their sins. What has often been overlooked is that fundamentally we as human beings are creatures of God and not creators. Very often when charges are brought against God, there's always a missing dimension. We simply fail to realize who we are. We are created by God. We are given God's rule for our lives. We are we are set before us, we have set before us blessing and curses. Walk in this way and you will be blessed. Disobey God and these are the consequences. That's how it operates. 
We don't get to make the rules. We are called to follow them. And whether or not we are incensed in our modern sensibilities by what we see to be terrible, let's be very clear that all of us is headed for the sword of death. We don't get a choice to decide whether we are going to live or die. We die. And every year and every day and every minute, thousands and thousands are harvested by death. That's the condition of man. And that is the consequence of sin. You see, my friends, we are not in charge. We are under a sovereign God who makes the rules. And we don't get the privilege to make the rules for him. But we must also recognize that life is not a privilege. Or rather, it is not a right. It is a privilege. To live is not an inalienable right. It is a privilege. It is by God's decision that we live or we die. And we must also know that the God with whom we deal is a God of consequence, a God of justice, a God who hates sin. One of the reasons we see so much argument about people who are killed. How, how, can, he, how can God command the destruction of the Canaanites? Well, he made them. They are sinners. They're born in sin and shape and iniquity. The, the only thing that is surprising about the Old Testament or the New Testament is why anybody's alive. That's the greatest mystery. And it is because of the mercies of God. We are sinners and we deserve death. Look, we deserve death instantaneously. The fact that God continues with us is a sign of his mercy. God blesses those who stand for his honor and he brings disaster upon those who dishonor him. But I want to make a few more general statements regarding this passage. Let me tell you what we must not take away from our text. First of all, we must not conclude that the way of God and the cause of Christ can be advanced by violence or by physical means. Throughout history, there have been zealots who have looked at the cause and looked at the story of Phineas as an example to be imitated. That the enemies of God must be exterminated physically. In rabbinic Judaism, we had Matthias, the zealot, who led a war against the Syrians, against the Gentiles, seeking to exterminate those who had risen up against God. In the first century, in AD 46, there were Jewish zealots who fought against Roman oppression. And we know the story of AD 70, where thousands and thousands of Jews were massacred in Jerusalem, and there were so many crosses around Jerusalem, they could not find space. Because zealots had risen up against Rome. The Apostle Paul, in, at least in Christian circles, was the most infamous zealot of the time. 
In fact, he was breathing out threats and slaughter. He was the one who said he was so extremely zealous for the tradition of the fathers that he used to persecute the church and try to destroy it. So there were zealots in Judaism, and Paul was foremost among them. There have been zealots in the Christian religion. One only has to look back to the Crusades to think of crusaders who believed that they must enforce the sword or bring violence to change men and women to adopt Christian teachings. But it ought to be said that this passage does not call the church to use physical means and particularly violence to do the work of the Lord. When one reads texts like these, there is a hermeneutical task that lies before us. And the first principle in biblical inter interpretation, before you look at grammatical or syntactic relationship, you must look at where the passage stands in salvation history. Did this thing come before the cross or after the cross? And that's a great mistake when people take Old Testament text and impose them upon us in the New Testament, not recognizing that the New Testament interprets the old and not the other way around. So you first of all need to look at, locate the text in its historical and salvation historical context. It was part of the Old Testament narrative, but it was not the fullness of revelation. Secondly, one must recognize that Israel at this time was a theocracy. We talk about democracy, and democracy really is the rule by the people. But theocracy refers to the rule where God is the head of state. And at this point in time, God was the head of state. There was no division between civil society or secular society and the religious order. All of life was one. So that idolatry, though it is a spiritual act, it was because God is the head of state, idolatry was seen as an act of treason against the head of state. They had gone to another God. And thus the consequence was punishable by death. In the New Testament, we are not a theocracy where God is the direct head of state. We have a civil society where God works through the laws of the society that has been put into place. Secondly, you will note that Phineas, and in other contexts in the Old Testament where there is violence against other nations, that these occur by divine command. It is the Lord who spoke to Moses. It is Moses who spoke to the leaders. That Phineas acted by divine command. Why? Because it was an act of judgment. And you need to understand that when God commanded Israel to fight against nations and to remove them, it was God's justice upon the nations. And when Israel sinned, do you know what God did? He also brought nations against Israel to remove them forcibly, violently, by death. You see, God is an equal opportunity God. He does not play favorites. Sin is sin, whether it's by Israel or by the nations. 
So we must understand then that he acted in command. What you, what you do not have in the New Testament is a command from the Lord Jesus Christ to use violence against unbelievers. You do not see it in the New Testament. In fact, when Peter chose to use a sword, the Lord Jesus rebukes him. Put up your sword. Do you not know that I could call legions from heaven if I wanted? Our Lord told him. You see, the kingdom of our God and the cause of Christ is not advanced by military means, not by carnal means, but this war in which we are involved is a spiritual war. It is not by might or by power that the cause of Christ is advanced, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We are fighting a battle, but it is not a physical battle, it is a spiritual battle. And the weapons of our warfare, they are not carnal, but they are spiritual to the steering down, tearing down of strongholds. Did you know that? You and I are involved in a spiritual battle. And it cannot be won by physical means. It is by prayer, by trusting upon the Spirit of God, by proclaiming the Word of God, by living godly lives in this world, that the cause of Christ's advance and never by violence. Secondly, we must recognize that Phineas, though faint, is a type of Christ. Because he exhibits the greatest zeal for God, that is Christ. We see something of the zeal of the Lord Jesus when he drove the money changers and the merchants from the temple. And he says, take away these things. My father's house is a house of prayer, not a house of merchandise. And the disciples remembered it was written, the zeal for your house has eaten me up. But Christ is a, is a type, is the antitype, the great example of Phineas. Because he demonstrated the greatest zeal. You see, he, he did not run anybody through with a javelin. But he, in his own body, received a spear. He took the spear in his side. He took the violence upon himself that we might be saved. It is zeal for God's glory, zeal for God's people that Christ died. A violent, a terrible death. This, you see, is our example. One who does no violence, but suffers violence. Who was cut down, taken out of the land of the living. Who was nailed violently and brutally to a cross. This is a man who shows true zeal. By bearing in his body our pain, our grief, our suffering. But third, if Jesus is the greatest example of zeal for God, you and I as believers are to exhibit the same spirit of zeal that appeared in Phineas and climactically revealed in Christ. We must show true zeal for the honor of God. And if there's going to be true zeal or passion for God's honor, it must come from love. A love for God, a regard for his honor, that he might be glorified in all things. But our zeal must be guided by knowledge. You know, Paul accused the Jews of the first century, he says, I bear a witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
Our zeal must be guarded by knowledge. We mustn't seek to go around establishing our own righteousness and seeking to serve God in order to get into the kingdom. We must exhibit the spirit of zeal that was in Phineas and was in our Lord. And you ask me how? Well, I want to suggest a few reasons first. We must be zealous for personal holiness. We must be passionate for holiness in our lives. It's rather interesting when Paul refers to this incident in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 8 and following, or if you go back to verse 7, it says, And, and do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And here he says, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. And the difference here in the, in the passage in the Old Testament in Numbers 25, it says that 24,000 fell, and here it says 23,000 fell. It's not, but the Bible, is not, the Bible is not full of mistakes. The Bible speaks in approximations very often. It's not a scientific text. And so you can approximate. Paul does that. In the Testament, many of the numbers in the Old Testament are approximations. We do that too. You know, Donald Trump says, you know, 10,000 people were at Israeli. Well, if you counted them all... You may come up with 7,563. But nobody's going to go and wrangle with him over, over the missing 2,000. He's given an approximation. The Bible does that. The Bible is not a scientific book. The Bible says the sun rises and the sun sets. And by the way, we who are scientific, we are still saying the sun rises and the sun sets. But we know that's not what happens phenomenologically. So at the end of the day, we must give the Bible the ability to do what we do. It doesn't have to be a scientific book with exact accurate accuracy in terms of numbers. It does not demand that of us, and it does not demand it of itself. But you notice, Paul in our text, he says, let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, as in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things, happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Paul, when he reads the story of Phineas, he says these things happened then, that we might learn, that we might not follow Israel's example of immorality and idolatry. And therefore, you, if you are to be zealous for God, you must be zealous for holiness. But you must flee from immorality of all forms and flee from idolatry that you must have no other God. That there must be nothing in your life more important than God himself. That's the lesson you learn. Flee immorality and flee idolatry. We must be zealous if we are to follow Christ's zeal and the zeal of Phineas. We are to be zealous for God by pursuing personal holiness. But we show our zeal for God by proclaiming the gospel. Paul says it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. We need to be zealous for God. When Paul arrived in Athens and he saw the great idolatry, we're told he was greatly disturbed and he preached Christ and the resurrection. And we must be zealous for God to proclaim the name of our Lord. We must tell men and women that there is a Savior, that He's a merciful and a forgiving Savior. That sinners may come to the fountain of blood and be washed of their sins. 
We must take the opportunities that are given to us to lift high the name of Christ. We ought not to be ashamed of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be zealous about a good thing. I met a man this morning who told me how badly burned he was. And how he prayed. Some of you remember. And how the Lord healed him. And in six weeks he was back to work. And that's a great testimony. But we must tell men that we have in our midst a healer. Who not only heals the body but heals the soul. That we have a savior who loved us. That he took our sins. That he was punished. He was beaten. Spat upon and crucified. And who died for our sins. That we may have access to God. That in Jesus Christ we have a, a true and a living Savior. Amen. That you are not alone. That you have a high priest in heaven who intercedes for you. Who loved you and gave himself for you. We are to be zealous for the gospel. Yes. My friends, we are to be zealous for God's people. The church. Paul says to the Corinthians, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. What kind of zeal should we have? A zeal for holiness. A zeal for the gospel. A zeal for the people of God. I hear a number of folks say all kinds of bad things about the church. Some who even claim to be Christians. They continue to run down the church. Everything they have to say about the church is negative. But the church is Christ's bride. Do you know, you know what? You never go to complain, you never go to a husband to complain about his wife. Now, his wife may be the most miserable woman you've ever met. The most cantankerous that you should hide from if you see her coming. But don't go tell the husband that. Don't go bring complaints and say nasty things about a man's wife to him. To him. He's not going to take it well. You don't have to be a genius to know that. And the same thing goes for the wife. Well, the church is the bride of Christ. And while the world may be able to see the worst of the church, Christ sees the best. Amen. This is his bride. It is his people that he has bled for and died for. And who one day when he's finished with them, there will be a radiant and glorious bride. Fit for the kingdom of heaven and fit for eternity. You, you must give yourself passionately to encourage God's people not to tear them down or criticize them. And there's, there's a place for gentle, loving rebuke when it's necessary. But your job is to encourage and build up the church of Jesus Christ and promote the interests of God amongst his people. To those who are weak, you come along and strengthen to those who are ignorant, you teach and instruct with all holiness and with all humility. To those who are financially in need, you support as best as you can. Your task is to be zealous for God, you see. Because if you do not love God, you cannot love his people. And finally, my friends, you must be zealous for good works. How do we reflect the zeal of Phineas? Not by murdering our enemies. Not by hating them, but we love men. And we show zeal by pursuing good works. Paul says we are not to be lagging in diligence, but fervent, that is zealous in spirit, serving the Lord. 
And even more clearer in Titus 2.14, he says, Christ gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deal and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Christ died for us, that we should be filled with zeal in doing the work of the Lord. You see, the cross of Christ and love for God should make us people who are white hot with passion that God's name, that the cause of God should be promoted. We should be fervent and zealous in praying. We should be zealous in serving the Lord, in doing things for the kingdom of God, because this is what really matters. We need a new spirit, not a spirit of lethargy and inertia, but a spirit of passion, because God deserves all of our hearts and all of our love. May God help us that in our generation, we exhibit the spirit of Phineas and the spirit of Christ in living passionate and devoted lives for the honor of God and the glory of God by pursuing holiness with all our might by the grace of God, by proclaiming the gospel, by doing good works that are pleasing to God. May God so help us for Jesus' sake.